Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Fifth Commandments. Before we get to the Fifth Commandment, a scribe came to Jesus and asked him what was the greatest commandment. So in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, the teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, that's Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what are the two primary commandments that Jesus... Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and He distills it down into two. Love God, love your neighbor. Okay? So, the first four commandments that we've been looking at the past few weeks... The first table of the law. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the Lord's name. You shall not make a graven image. You shall honor the Lord's day. All of that is the first four commandments are all about how do you love God. It's vertical. Okay? Now we're getting to the second six commandments or second table of the law. And these all focus on how you love your neighbor. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that God, you don't love God through that, but it's kind of the division that Jesus gave, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at Exodus 20, verse 12, as we start going into what's traditionally been called the second table of the law. That is more focusing on um, how do you love others? How do you love your neighbor? Okay. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We have the counterpart, if you guys remember, in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So, when Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, in order for us to understand how we love our neighbors as ourselves. God begins teaching by focusing first on the most basic of all relationships, which is what? The family. That's where it starts. Focus on the family, right? <laughs> okay. So it starts, loving your neighbor starts at home. Okay. So before we get to how you deal with society out there, God's economy is we first need to learn how to do it within the home. And it starts with honoring your father and mother. Okay, honor. The word in the Hebrew there is honor your father and mother. The word literally in the original Hebrew means to make heavy or weighty. 
Uh, we would say it means to respect, to esteem, to value, to, pri- to prize uh, fathers and mothers as gifts from God. Now, there's some prohibitions against this in other parts of the Old Testament. Leviticus 20, verse 9, For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood's upon him. So there was the death penalty in the Old Testament if you cursed your father and mother. Okay? Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate at the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Okay? <laughs> So a little bit things a little bit different back then than they are today. Now some of you may wish there was the death penalty. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, but that's a pretty stiff penalty for not honoring your parents was to be stoned. Um, the Bible also talks about sin in the New Testament, and oftentimes it gives a list of sins. So Romans one twenty nine through thirty gives a list of sins, and interestingly. Look at what's on the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, um, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It's interesting that disobedience to parents is in that list of vices that Paul gives. In the last days, you guys know we're living in the last days, right? When did the last days start? The moment Jesus went back up to heaven. When's he coming back? We don't know. Are we closer then than we were yesterday? Yes. yes. Okay, so we're still living in the last days. But listen to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 2. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy okay so one of the signs of an ungodly society is unruly children that aren't honoring their father and mother proverbs chapter 6 verse 20 my son keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching now go to exodus 20 are you still there look at the look at the um commandment honor your father and mother Does it stop right there? No, it says that, what? Your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. This, and we'll talk about this later on when we we go to Ephesians and Paul gives a commentary on this, but this is the first commandment with the promise. What's the promise? You will live long and prosper, okay? That you will have a long, prosperous life. Now, is this an automatic guarantee? Does it mean that if you obey your parents, you'll live to be 110? Is that automatic? Does it mean that if somebody dies in infancy or somebody dies as a child, they were disobedient to their parents? 
No, it's not an absolute. It's a general principle that if you live a life of obedience and honoring your parents, there comes natural blessings from that. Um, and so this was talking about the land that they were going into, which was the promised land. So let's turn to Deuteronomy for a moment. Um, just turn over a couple of, of, of books. Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, verse 32. Moses gives some instructions to Israel as they were getting ready to, to cross over into the promised land. And it, a lot of it had to do with training up children. Um, it's interesting when you go all the way through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it, 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 it talks a lot about teaching and training the next generation. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. And then to chapter 6, this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I've commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So somehow in ancient Israel, obedience to God, honoring parents, living a godly life was equated to a long and prosperous life in the promised land. Okay, now there is teaching in the New Testament related to parents. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul quotes the Old Testament here. Paul gives credence to the fact that this is a binding law. Okay, because he requotes it here in the New Testament. Colossians 3.20, basically the same thing. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now, I want to give you some background on how children were viewed during Paul's day. Okay, so Paul's writing to Ephesus. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae. They're steeped in the, the Roman Empire. Okay? So in these cities like Corinth, Rome, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, there was overpopulation. It was a huge issue. Abortions were very common. Abandoning children was very common. They would leave children in trash heaps or in some isolated places. This was back when children were sold into slavery if their parents didn't want them. If they were girls and not boys, the girls were taken to a life of prostitution. To the Greeks and the Romans, to those cultures, abandonment, Exposure, prostitution, abortion, that was not considered murder or sinful. And here's why. In that culture, a child was not legally or technically considered a part of a child until the father actually acknowledged the baby to be his child. And it was received into the family through a religious ceremony. 
So in the culture that Paul was addressing, children had no rights. Children were treated very poorly. And so it's amazing that in this Ephesians passage, who's he addressing? He's addressing children. Okay. So I want to give three biblical assumptions about children. And this comes from, let's just turn over to the Ephesians passage so you can see it. We're going to keep coming back to it. So turn over to Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to kind of see it with your own eyes because he's already addressed wives. He's already addressed husbands. He's going to address children, and then he's going to address fathers. But let me give you some assumptions about children that I think Paul has that I think the Bible has, especially when you look at both the Old and New Testament, how children were viewed. Children were viewed a whole lot differently in the Bible than the culture around them. Do you remember the pagan nations around Israel where they would offer their children as child sacrifices in the fire to the god Molech? That's what the pagan nations were doing around them. Okay? So here's some assumptions about children that I think the Bible teaches. Number one, children are addressed as vital members of the worshiping congregation and were present and involved. Look at your Bible there. Who's it addressed to? Chapter 6, verse 1, Ephesians. Children, who's he addressing in the church? Children. He doesn't say, parents, make sure your children obey, does he? How was this congregation receiving this letter? This letter was addressed to the entire congregation. And so Paul assumed that when they got this letter and they read it, the children would be present to hear the teaching of this passage of Scripture. So Paul assumed that the whole book of Ephesians, the whole letter of Ephesians, children would be there to listen to it in the worshiping um, community. Now, there's no Scripture that commands that children must be in corporate worship or that there's a certain age where you allow them into what we used to call big church. But I would have to say this. It's safe to assume from the Bible that children were valued and they were always present in the public worship services. Let me give you an example. In the Old Testament, when um, almost every revival or reformation occurred, you go back and trace the revivals and reformations that occurred in the Old Testament, children were always present in corporate worship gathering, involved in the prayer and the fasting and the repentance. So let me just give you one example. Um, In the book of Joshua... When God had given them the victory over Ai and they had failed miserably the first time through their disobedience, Joshua calls the entire nation together for a corporate worship service. And we read that in Joshua 8, 34 and 35. Afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Who was there? Little ones. In the Hebrew, it literally means one who's tripping over their feet. Probably toddlers who could barely walk. And what did Joshua read? The entire book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, a long, he read that for a long worship service, and it was assumed that little ones were there. I have this question asked a lot to me, and that is, 
why do you not have children's church for older kids? Why do you why do you have to have why do we have to have kids in the worship service? Why don't you provide something for my children? Now we do preschool and below, right? Um, but if you're over preschool, we ask that you keep your child in the worship service. And we've gotten pushed back over that from the years. Um, but let me just give you a, let me just give you my reasons. I ha- I have strong convictions that children need to be in the worship service for several reasons. And, and here's why. First of all, the preaching of the Word is one of God's primary ways of saving sinners. You ever thought about that? When your child sits week in and week out under the preaching of the gospel, God uses that to bring salvation to their hearts. They can understand more than you think they can understand. I've had some parents come up to me and say, at dinner table, uh, my son talked about something you said in your, in your sermon, and I didn't even think he was listening. Um, and so they may not get all of it, and they may be doodling, and they may be rolling around on the floor, but what are they hearing? They're hearing the word preached. They're being in corporate worship, and God may be speaking to them. You may not see it because you can't see what's going on in their little minds, but God may be using the word to, to... They may just remember one thing from that sermon, but it may be the one thing that God uses to, to bring faith. Okay? So, so that's number one. The preaching of the word is important for God to save sinners. But secondly, when you worship as a family, you as parents are modeling the importance of coming to worship on the Lord's Day with God's people. What did we talk about last week? The importance of the Lord's Day. So when you come... Um, and you all sit together as a family and you have your children there, you as parents are modeling to your children, this is important. Some churches have what I call segregated churches. You, maybe you've been to a church like that. You walk into the church, the children go here, the youth go here, the college go here, the adults go here. Everybody goes to their separate areas, and then at the end, they all come back together and get in their car. So they're, they're at church, and they're never together. Um, I don't like that because I think it leads to the third issue, okay? Here's the third issue. When we isolate children or youth from the main service, it makes it easier for them to be selfish and not want to integrate back into corporate worship as adults. Because what have they been told? We have a special service for you. We have everything. Everything's catered to you. And so some churches have become sad to say, perpetual youth groups. The, the, the main worship service has become a perpetual youth group. They try to entice young adults in with all this kind of stuff that's very tailored to them, and it becomes um, segregated. One thing that I really appreciated about Emmanuel is when you look out there, we see all ages and all different types of demographics, and we see uh, families with all different types of ages of kids all sitting together. And we have youth, we have children, we have grandparents. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to see. Some churches are not like that. They have a youth building, they have a children's building, they have an adult building, and they don't sit together at church and then they leave. I've never grown up in a church like that. I've always been in an integrated church. And I remember it was hard when Aiden was little. Before we came to this church, when we were in Black Forest in Colorado Springs, and Pastor Ron would preach long. Like sometimes he'd preach up to an hour. And... Um, I mean, it was hard for Aiden to sit there, and he would, like, roll around on the floor. And, and, um, but it was a value. That church didn't even have children's church. I mean, they had, a, they had a nursery. But once you were three years old, you were in the worship service. So um, anyway, so number one, 
Children were expected, I think a biblical assumption is children were expected to be in the corporate worship gatherings in, in the Bible. Here's the second major assumption that I have, a, I think the Bible teaches about children. The second major assumption we must come with is that children are gifts entrusted to our care and we as parents in the church must be good stewards of them. How did Jesus treat children? When we do baby dedications, this is often the passage of Scripture I go to because I think it's, it's, it shows the tenderness of Jesus and how He treated children. Mark ten thirteen through 16. They were bringing children to Him that He might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, I don't picture Jesus doing this mass, raising his hand, blessing. You know, like, bring all the kids here and hold them up. And I think when it says there, he took him in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on him. I think Jesus took the time to take each child into his hand and to hug that child and to bless that child and to, um, to receive that child. So if that's Jesus' attitude towards children... That should be our attitude as well. Thirdly, the major assumption is that Paul is addressing children who are Christians. Okay? What does he say there in chapter 6, verse 1? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In the Lord. Okay? Let's just camp out on children and salvation because that's a big issue that I have asked a lot of times. Parents are always wanting their kids to be saved, which is uh, what parent doesn't want their child to be saved, okay? So let's talk about that. First of all, um, I believe that children can be converted. Why are we having Team Kid, Cubbies, and Club 45 going on right now? Where are all the other kids right now? They're being in a context where they can hear the gospel at their level. And so I believe God can save a child. And a child is saved just like everybody else. How, how are you saved? You have to repent and believe. And so a child has to repent and believe. But what's the temptation for us as parents? What do we, what do we often are tempted to do? We want to see our child come to faith at an early age and we may put undue pressure on them that 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 may not be we may be too premature in what we do with that child let me give you an example okay my son aiden okay so he's grown up in church his whole life because i've been a pastor since he was six months old and so when he was in kindergarten um, he sat on the edge of his bed and said mommy and daddy i want to ask jesus into my heart and so, okay, Aiden, let's, let's pray. And so he prayed, and he had this big smile on his face, and he went to bed. And so as a parent, I could have said, Aiden, um, Don and I were, wanted to wait and see. Let's just put it that way. Don and I wanted to wait and see to see if that was true. Okay. We didn't discourage him, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But here's what happened when he was in fifth grade. Okay, in fifth grade. So we're talking five years later. He started having night terrors. He started um, having major um, n- nightmares. And we said, Aiden, what, what's going on? He, he wouldn't go to sleep at night. 
He had a fear of hell. He was fearing hell. He was fearing the return of Christ. He was fearing the second coming, and he couldn't sleep. And, and so we prayed with that. And then one day in the car, I was taking him to work. I mean, taking him to work. I was taking him to school. Yeah, I was taking him to work as a fifth grader. I was taking him to school, and he said, Dad, I don't think I'm saved. And I said, um, I didn't say to him, remember back when you were in kindergarten and you asked Jesus into your heart? Sure, you're saved, Aiden. Because he'd been struggling for six months with this whole night terror thing. He says, Dad, I don't think I'm saved. He goes, what should I do? And I said, well, you should do what anybody that's lost should do. You should trust in Christ Jesus. You should repent and believe, and and, um, I'll be praying for you. And so we kept presenting the gospel to him, kept catechizing him. And eventually, after a couple months, he came to dawn to me and said, I think I'm saved now. I'm no longer scared. I'm no longer, um, I, I believe that I am saved now. I don't think I was saved when I was in kindergarten, but I think I'm saved now. What would happen if I would have said to him when he was struggling, don't worry about it, Aiden, you're saved. You prayed the prayer when you were five. Um, you know, Once saved, always saved. Don't ever, don't ever doubt. Would that have been helpful to him? Now, I'm not saying God's not sovereign and couldn't have overcome that, but I could have been giving him a false sense of assurance that he was saved. Um, and so here's the deal. Do you and I as human beings have any right to pronounce another person saved? We can't pronounce a person saved. That's between them and the Lord. And so as parents, there's a strong temptation for us to want to pronounce our children saved, but maybe before they really are. So how do we, what's the balance? What do we do? So let me encourage you with some things um, with your children. First of all, we must always encourage our children when they show forth evidence of God's working in their hearts. Always encourage that. So when they talk about what they learned at church, when they talk about um, praying, always encourage that. And, and encourage them to talk directly to Jesus. Um, encourage them to start praying directly to the Lord. If God does that work of grace in their lives, you'll, you will see the difference. Okay, so encourage that. Number two, always be presenting the gospel to them encouraging them to find forgiveness in Christ and press upon them the need to follow Christ as Lord and then wait for God to do the work. Again, that's hard. Wait for God to do the work. Who is the greatest mission field in your life? Your child. So you should always be presenting the gospel to your child. Now, does that mean you stand on a street corner and preach at them when they come off the bus? You know, (laughs) what does that mean? You are always catechizing them, sharing the gospel with them. You can share the gospel in your prayers. Did you know that? Especially if they're little. That's how I did it with Aiden. When he was little, here's how I prayed with him. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. We love you, Jesus. Amen. When he was three, and that was the prayer we taught him when he was little. What seeds am I planting in Jesus as a, I mean, in Aiden as a three-year-old? Jesus died on the cross, that we love Jesus. And so, you're kind of basically presenting a really tiny little gospel there for a three-year-old. So, you know, always be presenting the gospel to them. Um, So if salvation is going to come, God will bring it about. The problem for us as parents is sometimes we want to play Holy Spirit Junior for our children, and we can't do that. We've got to wait for God to do the work. Okay? All right, so the command here is to honor your father and mother. Proverbs twenty three twenty two. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she's old. Do not despise your mother when she's young either, especially when she's old. Okay. 
What did, Math, what did Jesus say in Matthew 15, 4 through 9? Very interesting statement here. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says this, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and he who reviles father or mother must surely die. So Jesus is quoting scripture here. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting the law. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. What, basically what Jesus was saying is that these Pharisees were taking advantage of their parents in ways that were ungodly, and they were making everybody else think that they were doing the right thing on the outside. So it was just kind of this, this hypocrisy. And that's why Jesus says, listen, you, you put up a good act like you're all that, but your heart is far from me. Listen to what Timothy says about how we take care of our parents. First Timothy 5, 4 through 8. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all along has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And here's the kicker, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's a strong statement. So there is a biblical injunction for adult children to take care of their parents. And Paul says, if you don't, you're acting like you're worse than an unbeliever. So let's just open this up for question, I mean, for com- conversation. How do you, as a, and some of your parents, some of you grown older than me, you no longer have parents. But let's talk about that. As an adult, how do you honor adult parents? Because nobody in this room is still living in their, with their parents, hopefully. How do you honor your adult parents? How do you do that? What was that? Okay. 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 One of the saddest things that we used to do um, nursing home ministry when I was a youth pastor, and we'd go like once a month to a nursing home in Colorado Springs, or maybe once a quarter, and we'd um, basically sing songs with the with the people there and do some activities and just go and be with them. And, and some of the saddest things were people in nursing homes whose kids were not present to help. Um, and so we have a responsibility, and I've known some families that have like totally, they've, they've changed jobs, they've moved, they've, they've done major life changes to go take care of parents because it's that important on how to do that. Um, and so it's not just for little kids. Little kids, obey your parents. Well, now you're not living with your parents, so you don't, you know. Like if my mom calls up and says, Sean, have you done the dishes? No, Mom, I'm not going to obey. I mean, it's not like that, that doesn't happen anymore. But you, you honor your parents as adult children, okay? 
Anything else on how do we honor adult parents? One of the things that was frustrating, not frustrating, but my parents just moved to Phoenix, to Sun City. They moved from Colorado Springs to Sun City, and um, they had a smaller house that they were they, that they're getting rid of in Sun City and moving to a bigger house. But anyway, they had to do a lot of work on the house. And um, my parents, next year, 2018, they're going to turn 70. Um, and so I, my dad was kind of, my mom, I talked to her one day, and she just said, your dad's really tired. He's really like this is the first time their age is catching up with them. And I felt like I, this is the first time I felt kind of frustrated that I wasn't there to help them, that I couldn't. I mean, I asked my mom, I said, do you want me to fly out there and help you guys move? And she's like, no, no. And I was willing to do that. Um, and my parents are pretty healthy. They're, I mean, they're, they're in really good health. But I could tell that it was kind of a, a taxing on them stress-wise and health-wise. And um, normally, like living in Sterling, them in Colorado Springs, three hours, I go down there and and help, but the Phoenix is pretty far away. But so, all right. Yeah. What about parents? What's our responsibility? Look at Ephesians six four. There's a lot of Bible verses about how children are to honor their parents and obey their parents, but there is one verse on parenting in the Bible right here it's very frustrating don't you wish all right so how many of you guys think parenting is easy <laughs> why would there just be one or when you look at genesis to revelation there's not a lot of verses on parenting and you're thinking now come on now paul you wrote the whole book of ephesians and you're gonna give me one verse here we go verse four fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the lord one verse paul that's all you're going to give me one sentence let's look at this there are two primary commands in this verse one is negative and one is positive and paul is going to address the negative command first a not something you're not supposed to do so fathers and mothers but especially fathers do not provoke your children to anger do not enrage your children the word provoke means to enrage or make angry Don't give reasons for your children to have a right to be angry at you because of your inconsistency, your hypocrisy, or your um, unfair discipline. Colossians 3.21 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You ever seen that happen in a child, a discouraged, like a wallflower of a child because they've been so um, provoked? by their parent so we're supposed to discipline our children so how do we practically discipline our children in ways that are godly let me give you seven because that's a great biblical number right 
seven areas of concern in relation to parenting and discipline. Okay. First of all, we must ourselves as parents be under control. Look in your Bibles. Are you still in Ephesians? Okay. We're picking up in the middle of a section here, but this whole section starts back up in verse 17 of chapter 5. So go back and read chapter 5, verse 17. Everybody there? Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's very, very important. This entire discussion on husbands, wives, parents, children is framed in being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So you cannot parent and children cannot obey and you cannot be a good godly husband or a good godly wife unless you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as a parent, you first must be under the control of the Spirit. Spirit control. It starts with us. Okay, you're the parent. And I know some of you are still parents. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you have, you know, whatever the situation is, you're the one that needs to be under control first when it comes to discipline. You need to be spirit controlled. Secondly, discipline must never be arbitrary or unpredictable. What do we often say? Do as I say, not as I do. Does that work with children? You've got to be consistent in your discipline. If it's unpredictable, if it's arbitrary, if it doesn't make sense, you're going to confuse your child, and they're going to become resentful if it's, if it's like a yo-yo. So you've got to be consistent in how you discipline. Third, we must never be unreasonable as parents in that we are unwilling to hear the child's case. Okay. In other words, there may come a time where you change the punishment based upon getting more facts. They are a human being, and sometimes you may need to treat them with respect and say, you know what, I'm at least willing to hear you. Go to your room. I don't want to hear it. That may not be a good way to parent. You may need to say, okay, let's sit down and talk about this. You tell me what, what happened here. Dad, this is what, okay. I didn't have all the information the first time around. Let's cool our heads and let, me, let, let your mother and I think about this, but I'm least willing to hear you out. So don't be unreasonable and not even hear your child out. Uh, don't just shut them up and say, go to your room and, and never talk to them about it because they, they may need to give more information that you don't have. Now, they could be lying to you, so you need to be able to see through that, but you need at least willing to give them a hearing. Okay. Fourth, parents, we must never be selfish. One of the ways I see selfishness happen in parenting is putting guilt trips on your child. Um, and I've been guilty of this before, too. Um, as, there was one time I put a guilt trip on Aiden. And here's the guilt trip. Okay, you want to know what the guilt trip was? You wouldn't be doing that if you, were a, if you, if you weren't a pastor's son. You know, like I put the whole pastor's son thing on him. That's going to that's gonna make mom and I look bad, Aiden. So watch your behavior because it's going to affect mom and me as pastor. Well, yes, but who am I thinking about there? How it's going to affect me 
and not so much the situation with Aiden. And so not that we didn't discipline him and didn't talk about it, but we could place a, um, a guilt trip on our children in um, a lot of times our own insecurity comes out in how we parent because sometimes we want our kid to be something we weren't. You ever know like the dad that wasn't good at sports and so he lives it to his kid and pressures his kid to do everything or the mom that finds herself worth in her child and so um, everything comes back to her, to her reputation. Um, so remember, children are, are gifts. Let's go back to the gift thing. Uh, Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the, ro- the womb, a reward. All right, number five. We must never discipline in purely mechanical ways. What I mean by mechanical ways is that the punishment needs to fit the crime. Your child's not a robot, and so they're not an animal. They're a child with a conscience. They're a child with a soul. And so when you discipline, you must discipline them in ways. And so here's like oftentimes... You know, when we would discipline, I keep talking about Aiden. We don't have to discipline Zachary because he's special needs and he really doesn't. One of the blessings of having a special needs child, I'm never worried if he's going to get a girl pregnant. I'm never worried if he's going to get in a car wreck. I'm never worried if he's going to come home late. He never disrespects or talks back because he's nonverbal. And so there's just a joy to having a special needs child because it's like, Zach, there's other things we worry about him, but um, everything that comes to discipline, and there's times we've had to discipline Zach, but it's more out of, you know, don't touch the, don't touch the stove because it's going to burn your hand. So, you know, that's more like, you know, get your hand off the stove. Um, but um, when you when you discipline your child, you always want to aim for their heart. So bring it back to the gospel. And so you may say, you know what, I'm going to spank you because the Bible tells I need to spank you. But I'm doing that out of love because you need to be spanked. And so I love you, but I'm going to spank you. Okay. Versus bend over. I'm going to get my belt out and we're going to do this thing. And it's a mechanical, I'm going to spank you and we're done with it. Can you can discipline them. You're still spanking them or you're going to, you can ground them or however you choose to discipline. You can do it in love and not in a mechanical way. Six, this is a very important one. Never humiliate your child. I have seen this happen a lot in Walmart where parents shame their child. Um, I've been mortified in how some parents treat their children, um, just shaming them, Um, playing the comparison game. Um, One of the ways you can shame a child is comparing them to other siblings or comparing them to other people. You know, if if only you were like so-and-so. If only you were like your sister. If only you were like your brother. And play the the, the, the comparison game. Um, It really diminishes the dignity of that child. And then lastly, never fail to recognize the growth and development of your child. In other words, a 2-year-old acts like a 2-year-old, a 12-year-old acts like a 12-year-old, and a 20, almost 20-year-old acts like an almost 20-year-old. We had a um, friend at our former church. He was a pediatric neuropsychologist, and he did a lot of work in brain development and he said, one thing he told us was that the frontal lobe, which is where a lot of decision-making and stuff happens, it, it's late in development, especially in boys, more so than girls. So that's why boys are a little bit more, let's just use the word, 
kooky or foolish or what, what do we want to say? It, they, they don't develop as fast as girls as far as the, the, you know, the whole. And so sometimes your child just brain-wise, hormone-wise, you need to understand their development. And, and so just be, don't expect a three-year-old to act like they're 13. Okay? But at the same token, expect your 15-year-old to act like a 15-year-old. So just, just things like that. Okay? All right. So that's the negative command. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But, he shifts to the positive command to parents, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So two things there, discipline and instruction. Two words there, not just one. Discipline and instruction. What's the difference between the, 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 the two positive ways here? Well, first of all, it's discipline. The discipline of the Lord. This, is, this word really means the overall teaching, the general, the general teaching of children through godly discipline, mainly just the general educating of your child. So Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Okay, so if you really love your child, you'll discipline them. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. Oh, did I just put that one? Oh, yeah, I read it twice. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here's what I've discovered as I've looked at culture, as I've pastored, as I've counseled with families. There are just, and being a youth pastor for even before I was a pastor, there are some families who are just afraid to discipline their kids. They don't want to fight the battle. Especially, they're really good with the firsborn. Then what, comes, what happens with the second? By the time you get to third, you're like, man, I follow the battles, do whatever you want. So like the third child or the fourth child gets to do whatever they want because the parents are worn out by then. But Don sees it as a public school teacher, just how, we were just talking about this at dinner yesterday, just how unruly and undisciplined children are and how they have no fear. Like I went and ate lunch with her yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. I went and ate lunch with her. And I got there while the class was still going on. And there was this one kid... They were getting ready to line up to go to lunch, and he was just kicking the desk and kicking his chair. And, you know, I almost went over, I didn't know what to do. I, I almost went over to him and said, Buddy, do we have a problem here? <laughs> and so they left for lunch, and I said, You know, what's the deal with that kid? And she's like, Well, you know, he likes to throw desks, and he's unruly. And um, his mom had to come in and sit with him one time during class, and he was unruly for her. So even if you would have said something, Sean, he wouldn't have cared because he did it in front of his own mom. And she's like, some of these kids have no fear of God. Like when we were growing up, you had a little bit of fear of authority, didn't you? Like you didn't want to be sent to the principal. You didn't, there was that in like little bit of fear. She's saying a lot of these children now just don't have fear. Just don't have the fear of authority. Um, don't have any type of conscience. <laughs> so it's kind of scary. So discipline. All right, the second thing he says there is instruction. Um, the second thing parents start to do is to constantly nourish and bring to maturity our children in instruction. 
Um, this word really carries the idea of warning, like strongly warning them. It specifically relates to the will. Instruction, discipline deals more with the mind, like teaching them things and just growing them up. Instruction really deals with the heart and the will. So the word discipline relates to general instruction and discipline, but this word instruction means that you correct, you address a problem of character, attitude, or behavior. All right, there was an interesting story in the Old Testament. Do you guys remember the story of Eli, the priest? He had two ungodly sons. Do you know what his sons were doing? His sons were priests. Here's what they were doing. At the tabernacle, which is the church, let's just pretend like it's a church, they would stand out at the front of the church of the tabernacle, and when people would come to offer food, basically offer sacrifices, they would cheat the people out of their sacrifices, and they would take women in and have basically prostitution ring going on. So these are the priests, okay? So they were cheating the people. They were having sex. This was going on. Okay. Who's their dad? Eli. Eli turned a blind eye to his son's behavior. Didn't intervene. Basically, he basically said, you know what? If you go back and read it, basically Eli said, you know what? You know, they kind of had the attitude, uh, those you know, boys will be boys. Let them do what they're going to do. I don't want to discipline. I don't want to, you know, it's just the Lord's house. Who cares if they cheat? Who cares if they're doing prostitution? It'll all work out in the end. Listen to what happened. Samuel, little Samuel, remember little Samuel when God called to him? Little Samuel, the very first prophecy that Samuel had to do as a little boy was to go to Eli and tell him this, okay? So 1 Samuel 3.13. This is Samuel talking to Eli, the old man. I declare to him that I'm about, this is God, I declare to him I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So what does God say he's going to do? I'm going to punish him. And here's the scariest passage in that thing. Samuel goes to Eli and says, for your sons there will never be an atonement ever made for them. What does that mean? Basically, he's told them, your sons are going to hell. There's not going to ever be an atonement for them, no matter what they do. And, and what is, whose blame is it placed upon? Eli. Because, and these are grown men. So back then, a little bit different than us, the, the father did not go in and restrain his, his sons. He didn't discipline them. Okay? Now, this, this is another issue I want to talk about because I think I've, I've, this is a heartbreaking issue that I've had to counsel over the years with people. What about parents whose children have rebelled or gone wayward? You raised your child in church. They went to vacation Bible school. They got baptized. They're young adults now. They're not going to church. They've made poor decisions. They're acting like everything you taught them just flew out the window. How, how do you deal with that? A couple of things. First of all, it's not your fault. Okay? Don't lay a guilt trip on yourself that it's your fault because they're adults who make their own choices. Okay? So don't beat yourself up that you did something wrong. 
as parents, we do the best we can. We, we raise our kids. We disciple our kids. We bring them to church. We do the best we can with what we have. But at the end of the day, they're adults and they're going to make their own decisions. And so don't beat yourself up with guilt thinking that it's all on you if they've made those decisions. Okay? But you must also pray diligently and ask the Lord to grant them repentance to come back to Him. If they are backsliding, or if you don't even think, you know, think they're not saved, pray for their salvation. But here's the thing. Don't ever give up hope. The Lord's timing is different than our timing. The Lord can do a miracle. Okay? So don't ever give up hope on a wayward child. If God could save Paul, who was Paul? Saul. Saul. A blasphemer, a murderer. Um, God forgave David who committed adultery. Um, if God can save these wicked people in the Bible, his arm is not too far to reach out and save and bring back a wayward child. Okay? So don't ever give up hope. God, God can do, reach down and do a miracle in their lives. Um, and, and don't place it all upon yourself. Don't carry that burden that it's, that it's your fault. Okay? So back to the actual commandment. Honor your father and mother. Now, there is a general principle. Remember I talked about how some of these commandments have a general principle? There is a general principle that is taught throughout Scripture, and that is this. We are to honor and respect those in positions of authority over us. So we're going to expand this out to just parents, to what's the general principle for all of us as Christians? Honor and respect the God-given authorities that are placed over you. Every single one of us has a God-given authority over us. Even if our parents have died and gone to be with the Lord, um, we, have, we still have authorities over us. What are these authorities? Well, let's look at the first one. Our relationship to the government. Is not the government ordained by God to be an authority over us? Yes. We are to honor and respect our government. So let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 13 through, we're going to go through 13 through 17. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 13 through 17. It says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, what makes this so radical is who is the emperor at the time that Peter is writing this? It's Nero. Nero was torching Christians. Nero was persecuting Christians. So this was one of the worst times in um, Israel's history at this time, the, the mid to early 60s, 
<laughs> the raging 60s, the AD 60s, um, where Nero was in power. But notice here there's no exceptions. <laughs> Peter, Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say submit only if it's a democracy. Submit only if you like the president. Submit only if the legislature passes laws you agree with. Submit unless it's communism. Submit only when they're watching. What does he say? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Okay. Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What does Jesus say? Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay, so an authority that God has placed over us is government, whether we like it or not. We are blessed to live in America. I wonder how people that are living in North Korea feel about this verse. It's a whole lot different perspective. It's a little bit easy in America for us to look at these verses and say, okay, yeah, I can deal with my government. It's a whole lot different if you're in a place where the government's not very, um, very good to you. But do you realize God ordains and tears down governments? Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. So in our text here, Peter gives three practical ways that we are to shine as lights, strangers in a strange land, in relation to the government, regardless of whether we like it or not. So first of all, he tells us that it's God's will that we should do good. Notice he says there in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Very often do you, I mean, not very often do you have an explicit statement where it says this is God's will. This is God's will that you do good. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are to be good citizens of northeastern Colorado. We are to seek the welfare of the place we live. Um, we're not so spiritual that we don't want to get involved in making this place a better place to live. How do we do that? We do good works, whether that's volunteering at the fire department, whether that's um, you know, paying, paying your taxes, whether that's uh, whatever it is, we need to do good in our communities. Um, Titus 3, 1 through 2, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people okay so do good in your community as a way to submit to the governing authorities secondly peter tells us not to abuse our freedoms with a license to engage in sin look at verse 16 live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of god this could be america's verse land of the free but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil Okay, so with the freedoms we have in this nation, 
We are to live holy lives. And thirdly, we're, we're to be slaves of God. Live as servants of God, literally slaves of God. Doulos is the Greek word. Our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now let me give you a biblical example of this. Do you remember how David, how, how did Saul treat, how did King Saul treat David before David, you know, before Saul died? Was it good? Chucking spears at him, hunting him down. Did David have every right to want to kill Saul? If you go back and um, let's go back to 1 Samuel 24. This is kind of a comical little story. But it shows how David did not abuse his power or David submitted. David submitted to God's ordained governing authority, even though that governing authority was a jerk, Saul, who was trying to kill him. So 1 Samuel 24, the cave episode. You guys ready? Everybody, 1 Samuel 24. 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is kind of a funny story. What's going on? David and his men are way back in this cave in the darkness. Saul goes back there to go number two, for lack of a better term. And then um, David sneaks up on him, and his men are like, this is your opportunity. He's in the dark. He's by himself. He's vulnerable. Slit his throat. So David sneaks up, and what does David do? David just cuts off a corner of his robe. Okay, But what does David feel about that? He felt convicted. He was convicted because he realizes... Even cutting his robe is an act of disrespect because he's the Lord's anointed. He was a man who understood God's law. In Exodus twenty two twenty eight. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. In a sense, he was cursing a ruler by cutting the robe. Um, in verse 5, he's under deep conviction. He knows he's done wrong. He knows he's gone too far. He knows it's a clear sin to do what he did and touch the anointed king. And so David tells the men, listen, don't do this. One of the things that we see in David, the reason why David's a man after God's own heart, even though he did some major sin, he knew God's law. He knew what God's word said. And when he was under conviction, he repented quickly. Um, and so here's kind of a lesson from David for us. When you sin against God's clear word, are you quick to con- confess and repent? Um, let's keep going. Let's, let's, let's look at verses 8 through 15 of this story. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. 
And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. And basically, David comes out and pleads his innocence. that even though he had the opportunity to kill Saul, he acted honorably and did not commit treason. And you see David's heart in verse 12. Basically, he leaves it to the Lord to judge and avenge him instead of taking matters into his own hand, which is Romans 12, 9. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's an example of somebody who respected a governing authority, um, even though the governing authority was pretty much trying to hunt him down. Okay? So when wronged, do you take justice into your own hands, or do you leave it to the Lord to sort it out? So... Main command, honor your father and mother. We're expanding it to any type of authority structure. And so we've, we've gone big, government. Okay, let's take it down a little bit. Our relationship to our boss or our supervisor. Everybody here have a boss or a supervisor? At least somebody that's over them? Well, some of you that are retired, God's my boss. <laughs> Those of you that still are employed, do you have somebody that works over you? Okay. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. This is talking about bond servants back in that culture, and I don't want to get in a whole discussion about bond servants and, and, and how that all worked, but just understand the general principles. We're talking about employees and employers, how do we as employees relate to our employers. Okay, So bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, good, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. Same thing in Colossians three twenty-two through 25. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer doer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So basically, as employees, do you honor... Your employer. God has ordained your boss as an authority structure over you. Now, your boss may be a jerk. Your boss may be inept. Your boss may be incompetent. Anybody ever had one of those types of boss? Okay, so, but you're still to honor them because you're doing your work as unto the Lord, 
You're not just working for your employer. You're not just working for your company. You're not just working for your organization. When you work, you're representing the Lord, is what Paul's saying. So even when they're looking at you, when they're not looking at you, you're to be the best employee you can be. So how can you do wrong? We can do wrong in many ways as employees. We can actually steal from our company in money or in things. We can steal in time. We could seek to advance ourselves at the expense of others. We can slander or injure another person's reputation on the job. We can bend the rules or policies to fit our needs. So we honor our parents. We honor the governing authorities. We honor our earthly supervisors or bosses or employers. But I want to take it down one level to the church, and this may be something you hadn't thought about. What about your relationship to the elders in the church or the spiritual leaders in the church? What, what are we to do to those that God has raised up as spiritual leaders? So 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, the ESV translates this, let the elders who rule well. I don't like the term rule there. Um, let me just kind of, I did my doctoral thesis on this passage of Scripture, so I know a lot about what this is. Um, the, the word there is actually lead. Let me give you a difference between how Presbyterians do elders and how Baptists do elders. Okay? Presbyterians have what they call ruling elders. Ruling elders means that the elders make all the decisions and the congregation has no say, and basically what the elders say goes, and they're the primary leaders in the church. That's what elder rule is. We are not an elder rule church. We are an elder led church, which means that the elders lead, but ultimately the final authority is in the congregation. You guys can kick us out. You guys can get rid of us. You guys can vote us out. The authority rests in the congregation. We lead the congregation, but ultimately the authority is in the congregation. So, but it says the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And there's a debate about what double honor means. Is it talking about pay? Is it talking about um, respect? Uh, there's different debates about that. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That word over you in the Lord is the same Greek word for let the elders who lead well. So God calls... Lay people in the congregation to respect, to honor elders, pastors, those who are in the church. Um, so let's look in the book of Acts for a moment and see how God has raised up some leaders in the church. So Acts, let's go to the book of Acts. And this is a little vulnerable because... I'm an elder telling you how to treat an elder, <laughs> so it's kind of weird. And we have an elder in the room, too. So um, Acts chapter 6, this is a prototype. We don't want to get all of our teaching about how elders and deacons function in the life of the church, specifically from the book of Acts, because we also have the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and Titus. But you do see kind of a prototype here um, of how the disciples, the original apostles, dealt with leadership issues in the church and how they appointed deacons and how the congregation kind of came together. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, are you guys watching Facebook? Am I flipped? 
or am I still upright? Am I like sideways? Because everything is now turning sideways on my Facebook here. Do I look like I'm weird? Am I sideways? Oh, no. Well, better? No. So I've been sideways the whole time? Am I better now? (laughs) Well, it's just hard to keep it upright like that. Okay, so... Am I I normal now? Okay. Weird. All right, Acts chapter 6. So sorry, Facebook people, if you're watching me sideways that whole time. Um, You can always turn your... your, uh, phone or whatever sideways acts chapter six now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the hellenist arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so what's going on here? There's a problem in the church where these widows are not getting help. And the apostles say, listen, we really want to help these widows, but our primary job is preaching, teaching, leading. So congregation, would you get together and choose some men that are qualified to be deacons, sort of, that can take care of these widows because we need to devote ourselves to leadership. So you kind of see a leadership structure of um, of kind of a prototype of the difference between elders and deacons there. Uh, Go to Acts chapter 14 for just a moment. Acts chapter 14, uh, 21 through 23. Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Who did they appoint in every church? Elders. Okay, multiple, a plurality of elders were appointed by the apostles in every church to lead when they were gone. Okay. Acts chapter 20, 27 through 32. Paul is addressing the elders of Ephesus. He's about ready to leave to go to Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Okay. In verse 28, they are called overseers. In verse 17, they are called elders. In verse 28, they're also called to pastor or to care for the church. So a pastor, an elder, an overseer, it's all the same word. And we're to watch over, protect the flock. Okay, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. You've got the qualifications of elders or an overseer. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. And, and, and there's probably more there we could go, but let's just look at the first few verses there. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's the same as a pastor or an elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if, he, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Some qualifications. Then go over to Titus 1, 5 through 9. Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9. Okay. This is why I left you in Crete. He's talk, Paul's talking to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what... Remain in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So as you can see, the Bible talks about the role of elders being appointed in the church. But notice what your responsibility is to your elders in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. We have a high and holy calling as elders of what we're supposed to be characterized and what we're supposed to do. The Bible is very clear. I just kind of showed you that. But the Bible also talks about how you are to respond to us. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, the word obey may sound strong. Really what the word means there is trust. Trust and respect and submit to your leaders. The, the second word submit means to voluntarily yield to the spiritual authority of a leader. So your responsibility, okay, honor your father and mother. Honor the governing authorities. Honor your boss. Honor your elders. But what's my role as an elder? What am I supposed to be doing? What does that verse say in Hebrews 13, 17? I am keeping watch over your souls. I'm supposed to watch over your souls and the other elders as well. That means to shepherd, that means to care, that means to preach, that means to, to protect. And notice what he says there. We are going to have to give an account of how we did that. So the writer of Hebrews expresses 
the gravity and eternal consequences of pastoral leadership and that shepherds, elders, will stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account on how they cared for the souls entrusted to their care. So I have to watch over your souls and I have to give an account for that. It scares me half to death, but that's what God's called us to do. We talk about that, don't we, Glenn, as elders, a lot in our elders' meetings of what, what the high and holy calling of elders is. But what does that, the rest of that verse say? Hebrews 13, 17, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. You want to make sure you have a happy, joyful pastor. <laughs> it's not going to be an advantage to you if they're not. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So a congregation's response to pastoral leadership does not rest in blind obedience, okay? We're not calling you to blindly obey us. That's not what we're saying. You are to um, submit to us in as far as we conform to the Scriptures. If we get off the rails in the Scriptures, if we get off the rails in character, you have every right to come and address us, to talk to us, um, to confront us, because we're still going to have to give an account of how we did that. First uh, Peter 5, 2-3 Shepherd the flock, this is talking to elders again, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, yet not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. So here's the overall principle that we've looked at tonight. The overall principle in the fifth commandment is this. We must show honor and respect to all God-ordained authorities in our lives, whether that's parents, the government, employers, and church leaders. 